Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Florida's First Lady Casey DeSantis is diagnosed with breast cancer. The battle over school district mask mandates continues, and the reaction from Florida lawmakers is the federal government gets closer to defaulting on the national debt next week. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. But first, that music means it's time for some numbers. Gentlemen, we're all back. Uh, the band's back together here. Do you bring some numbers? Yeah, Zach, my number is 372,000. It's a it's all a right. big one, and for those who listen to the show, it may be a maybe a kind of familiar one. <laughs> How about you, Antonio? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with 44. Not too familiar, but the reason will be very familiar. All right, and I'm going to go with a, a simple dozen here. That's 12 for me, um, 44 for Antonio, and 372,000 for John. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, there was an outpouring of support for the DeSantis family from across the political spectrum this week after the governor's office announced that Casey DeSantis has breast cancer. DeSantis is just 41 years old with three young children. She's a charismatic and high profile first lady who has championed mental health initiatives and also is considered an important political advisor for her husband, Antonio. This is sad and shocking, and it sort of puts things in perspective a little bit. Politics can be brutal, but we're all human. We're all vulnerable, and hopefully we can all have sympathy for each other's struggles. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. And that actually was the first thing I thought of when I saw the announcement from the governor's office. You know, I mean, I hope and pray that Florida's first lady has a speedy and complete recovery, because the first thing I thought about was her and the DeSantis family. I mean, I remember seeing her at an event at Mar-a-Lago in February 2020 just before she gave birth to their third child. And, and I remember seeing the occasional photos of her and the young children uh, most recently down here at a sea turtle event at Loggerhead Marine, where she attended with, I believe it was their oldest child. And, and of course, you know, the political ad back in 28, the 2018 race where the governor, well, then candidate for governor, Ron DeSantis was playing with Legos and his toddler son and said they were building a wall. Look, at the end of the day, they are a family. And with, you know, three very small children that need their mom. 
Uh, that is a priority above all, just like for every family. As for politics, I noticed Zach, that you spoke with Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz about her own battle with breast cancer back in 2007. Now, at the time, back, you know, back then, 14 years ago, I was the editorial page editor at the South Florida Sun Settler in Fort Lauderdale. And I remember we were sparring with Wasserman Schultz over some issue. Now, it wasn't as politically fraught a time like it is now, but it was still one of those moments where you stopped, took stock and reminded yourself that we are all humans. And it was a reminder to always watch yourself in your rhetoric, you know, not make it personal and just keep the disagreements to the policy. And speaking of policy, I, I hope uh, in this especially p- politically toxic environment, you know, we all do the same. But Floridians should also hope that this is one of those moments where the state's political leadership also takes a moment and back some compassionate public policy over ideology. Now, our columnist, Alexander Cloud, this week incidentally wrote about the Promise Fund. Uh, for those not familiar with it, the Promise Fund helps low-income and disadvantaged women, especially women of color, get health care funding and coverage, including cancer screenings. One of the Promise Fund co-founders is Nancy Brinker, who started the Susan G. Komen Foundation after her sister, uh, Susan, G., Su- Susan G. Komen, uh, died of breast cancer. The Promise Fund is out there right now raising money to help fund health care and identify women in need for these life-saving services. You know, it's obviously a worthy and laudable effort. But that effort to provide low-income women, in fact, people, all sorts of people, you know, with potentially life-saving health care coverage would be improved if Governor DeSantis and the legislature were to agree to expand Medicaid coverage. The money from the federal government is there. Just like Casey DeSantis, there are women we have not heard about who are battling this breast, breast cancer, and, and many of them do not have the, need, the means to fight the disease. Expanding Medicaid would go a long way to help those without the resources. Uh, let's all pray for Kenny, Casey DeSantis, but let's also give everyone a chance to be a survivor, too. Yeah, and one thing that's notable is that uh, Casey DeSantis is pretty young. I mean, she is uh, she is just um, past the age where they even start to recommend uh, mammogram uh, screenings. Uh, hopefully, uh, she caught it early. Um, but I think um, you know her going public like this might encourage um, other younger women to to go out and get those screenings. Um, you know, you're, as you mentioned, I, I did talk to. Uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman <clears throat> Schultz, and uh, you know she kept her diagnosis private for for more than a year, and she had some personal reasons and some professional reasons that she just she wanted to uh, keep it to herself. Um, and everybody, you know, everybody's different. Everybody uh, experiences these things differently, and and um, what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next person. But you know, Casey DeSantis has chosen to be uh, public. About this, um, uh, my, my colleague Jim Rossica talked to uh, former Florida Supreme Court Justice Barbara Periente, who also was was very um, public about her diagnosis and was even um, on the bench uh, after she had lost her hair to to chemo um, and uh, you know out there uh, you know uh, trying to to continue uh, her work. Um, and uh, Debbie Washerman Schultz said that uh, you know she was she admired Casey DeSantis for going public with this and and uh, serving as a, uh, hopefully as an example uh, for women to take their breast health seriously um, and get these screenings. And, uh, you know, sh- uh, she mentioned that, you know, women are often caregivers and they put other people's health ahead of their own. 
but uh, you know, in situations like this, you really have to be on top of these things. And um, you know, so uh, you know, hopefully, you know, this is a terrible situation for the DeSantis family, but maybe some good can come out of it if, if she can serve as an example um, to all. Well, even as the governor was dealing with the terrible news about. Uh, his wife, he continued to grapple with some big issues impacting the state, including the ongoing school mass debate. The Florida Board of Education is meeting today to discuss penalties against school districts that adopted mass mandates in defiance of the governor. John, the Delta wave is is winding down and, and some districts such as uh, Sarasota have actually dropped their mass mandate, but the governor's administration uh, isn't backing off from trying to make an example out of these districts. Is this partly about sending a message in case there are future waves and future uh, inclination to, to do these mass mandates? Yeah, it's uh, it's clear that the DeSantis administration, uh, you know, through the State Board of Education, which is totally in his camp, they, they, they want no wiggle room left on mask policies. Uh, we've had 11 counties defying his order that allowed parents to decide whether or not their children would wear masks. Uh, and just a few hours from when we're recording this podcast, as you pointed out, Zach, it's, it's likely that the Board of Education will come down hard on them. Uh, one possibility, withholding a month's salary from school board members and in uh, Lachua and Broward counties, uh, an equivalent amount of state funds to eliminate the pay that the board members received as a replacement uh, pay from the Biden administration, which is uh, siding with these uh, rebel counties. Um, Sarasota County, uh, I, I'm thinking maybe they have uh, dodged the DeSantis bullet by voting to repeal their mask ordinance Tuesday since uh, their COVID positivity rate had dropped below uh, 8% in the county. Um, that was, uh, the, the board had set 10% as the uh, level of infection needed to uh, keep the mask policy in place, but they they, they repealed the policy outright. So it's uh, it's it's not coming back, it's, it, it seems at this point. But uh, but yeah, to your point, uh, we'll, we'll soon be gathering around the uh, dinner table again for Thanksgiving, which was widely seen as having a super spreader potential last year in the uh, pre-vaccination days. And with the uh, Delta variant so infectious, there's probably a strong chance that we'll see an uptick after maybe that holiday or during the snowbird season when we have so many people traveling to this state and uh, mixing and mingling. But, you know, as it looks now, uh, based on what the board will likely do today, uh, schools will not be able to have that kind of strict mask policy that they uh, they tried to keep in place where only those with a medical excuse could opt out. Um, DeSantis has been relentless on this point, and uh, it looks like today's board action against the 11 uh, defying counties will be a kind of an exclamation point at this point. Uh, uh, but there are still lawsuits underway and on appeal. So this debate over masks or no masks will continue, at least in courtrooms. And uh, the debate will likely uh, regain even more focus if we start experiencing, uh, you know, a, another Delta surge over the holiday season. But but by then, DeSantis may have war, really, you know, won the war of attrition over the masks, it seems like, uh, keeping that vaccine wary uh, anti-mask political base that he has courted for so long, uh, he'll be keeping them happy. But it does raise a question. It, it hasn't done much to uh, help suppress the virus. Uh, most credible health experts say uh, they, they have been recommending in favor of masks, and uh, but, but not in Florida. Can't be done. 
It was interesting. One of the reasons that the Sarasota County School Board members cited for repealing the mask mandate is this legal battle with the governor's office. So it's it's obviously having an impact. It's having a chilling effect on school boards. They are tired of, some of them at least, are tired of fighting with the state, tired of fighting with the governor. So uh, he it does seem like he has, he has worn uh, some of them down. Uh, it was interesting, John, I don't know if you saw this week, Ken Griffin, who was the governor's top donor, this billionaire hedge fund manager, said that he thought the mask wars were a distraction from the governor uh, promoting uh, the vaccine. I thought that was kind of um, an interesting point from one of the governor's um, top donors. But uh, there's obviously some some disagreement, uh, it seems like, even within DeSantis's camp about this um, mask strategy, but it also seems like the Delta wave is winding down and that maybe this becomes less of an issue going forward and that DeSantis has made his point to his base that he supports them. Uh, and uh, that, that might have been um, the whole point of this uh, after all. But Well, as we record this podcast, there are 11 days until the federal government defaults on its debt unless the debt ceiling is raised by a vote of Congress by October 18th. Democrats have been trying to raise the debt ceiling, but Republicans are threatening to filibuster the vote, saying they want to, uh, the debt increase to go through a different process known as a budget reconciliation that can't be filibustered. Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott have supported the Republican position on uh, raising the debt ceiling. Antonio, the details of this fight are pretty uh, arcane, and it now looks like this might be kicked down the road uh, until December with sort of a short-term debt ceiling increase. But you know, this issue is not going away, and it could be hugely consequential if nobody blinks in this sort of game of debt ceiling chicken. Economists are saying that not lifting the debt ceiling could result in widespread economic calamity. What are your thoughts? Well, gentlemen, you know, this is deja vu all over again. You know, early in the podcast, I mentioned I was previously an editorial page editor in a former career life here. And I, I remember a couple of those debt ceiling battles from the Obama years that were, you know, pretty white knuckle. Look, hear me out on this because this is the issue, not Afghanistan, not infrastructure, not abortion, not COVID measures. The debt ceiling, albeit, as you said, Zach, a, a pretty arcane issue, is the big one. And by that, I mean the debt ceiling stalemate is the one issue that will tell if the United States is kind of in a hopelessly politically intransigent place. If, in fact, Democrats and Republicans, and right now it's Republicans who are saying they will not vote to lift the, the debt ceiling. In fact, yesterday, our own U.S. Senator Rick Scott tweeted, quote unquote, I will not vote to raise the debt ceiling, period. Well, that's that's mm. pretty concrete, I'd say. Um, but the problem is, is not raising the debt ceiling automatically means that you default on paying the debt and we enter a, a sort of a financial apocalypse. And then, yes, there is no other political issue that can be solved in a bipartisan manner. I mean, if you can't get Republicans and Democrats to agree to whatever compromise it means so that you can continue to pay the debt and we can continue to have at least economic growth then what else is there to, you know, to resolve here in a bipartisan manner? Look, as I've said on this podcast, I'm a former business writer. I have written about finances and economics all my life. And whether you want to believe me or not is inconsequential. But the truth is, is what economists say is true. 
you know, defaulting on the debt will bring on an economic crisis that will make the coronavirus shutdown in the Great Recession of 2008 look like, you know, summer at the beach. You remember that 35-day government shutdown in 2018? Nothing compared to a default. Uh, don't take my word for it. Look at past debt ceiling battles, including the ones that the most serious ones that in 2011 and 2013 that resulted in some, you know, pretty harsh budgetary measures. But still, in both cases, Republicans and Democrats, even in a time that it was somewhat polarized politically, uh, Republicans and Democrats walked away from the brink because they knew what crossing the line meant on the other side. And if Republicans are truly committed to this path, and if Democrats are unable to work this out among themselves in budget reconciliation, then it looks like uh, both sides on Capitol Hill are willing to risk the country standing as the premier economic power on the planet. And, and if that's the case, then what else really can be achieved legislatively in Washington? Look, coupled with the January 6th insurrection and attempted coup to end democracy as we know it in the US, a debt default will kind of be a, a, an economic bookend to what has been the political tragedy uh, that has been largely been 2021. What do you think of Rubio, uh, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott's position on this and that basically saying we're not going to vote for this? You know, the Democrats have to figure it out. I mean, they've been criticized, especially from the left, as, you know, sort of playing games with the country's financial stability. But it's not just Republicans who have done this over the years. Democrats have tried to use the the debt ceiling, um, you know, to the, the the need to raise this the debt ceiling to try and extract some kind of political a- advantage. Do you think Rick Scott and Marco Rubio are out of bounds on this? Well, here's the the thing. I, I mean, I think they both clearly know they what's at risk. They're they're you know, and, and and part of this is you know sort of negotiating leverage. The problem is that they have the danger for all of us here is that. Republicans are sort of putting themselves in a box without a way out. What they're basically saying is, Democrats, you can do this on your own through budget reconciliation. But they must also know that the Democratic, you know, quote unquote, the, the, the 50-50 Democratic majority in the Senate that is, that is a Democratic majority simply because the Vice President Kamala Harris is a Democrat, which gives them the 51 votes, that 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 majority itself is a bit fractious. And there are two votes in the U.S. Senate, you know, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, that are, we, we don't, they're not solidly democratic on this question of finances and budgets. And, and we've seen that in the whole infrastructure debate. So what you're doing as a Republicans is you're kind of kicking the can to the Democrats, thinking that in the end, they're gonna have to come through Otherwise, they're going to get blamed. The problem is that if we end up defaulting on the debt and we end up in an economic crisis, it's the entire country and they're not going to be faultless. And in that scenario, like what Rick Scott said yesterday on Twitter, I will not vote to lift the debt ceiling, period. You're boxing yourselves in the corner that if if the Democrats, you know, no pun intended, but if the Democrats default, then you're all in the same boat. So it's, it, I, I, they know better. They know exactly what's at risk um, and they, they know better. But I just uh, I think the rest of us should be kind of concerned that one team on the, on the side of the aisle in the U.S. Senate has kind of boxed themselves into a political position 
that they may find themselves very difficult to extract themselves from and are counting on the other side to basically, you know, avoid Armageddon. Um, but aside that, you know, their numbers are not solid either. Well, you have to think that this is serious enough that they'll figure it out in the end. But who knows? Uh, as you and, said, and Antonio, the past, this, yeah, yeah. they always have. The past, yeah, they always have. But the problem is that what may be a little different this time is that positions in the past didn't get so hard that you couldn't find a face wave saving way out. And I'm, I'm worrying that that's not happening this time. Well, as you said, this could be a, 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 a litmus test for how broken Washington really is, sadly. John, uh, we'll move on to some numbers here. John, you want to tell us about your number? Yeah, Zach, my number, uh, 372,000. Well, that's the vote margin that former President Donald Trump carried Florida by in this last election. Uh, he carried the the biggest swing state in the nation, Florida, but he lost the President uh, Biden in the uh, Electoral College and also by 7 million popular votes. But uh, anyone who has been unable to avoid the uh, resurgence of Trump over the past few months will know that the former president has been crying that the uh, election was rigged with fake votes cast. And uh, despite no evidence of basically anything he said, he's convinced many of his followers that, uh, well, he was robbed. Uh, the state of Arizona completed a months-long audit of its vote, not showing really much substantially, but giving more life to Trump's demands that these audits occur in other states. And uh, it's become an issue now that uh, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, that was won by Trump, uh, and even in Texas, that was another uh, Florida uh, I'm sorry, it was another uh, big win state for Trump, like Florida. But the idea of having audits of those uh, ballots also is being raised. Uh, and sure enough, it doesn't take long for all this to, to come around to Florida. The discussion is beginning here. Uh, never mind that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, he's one of the former president's most loyal uh, consigliaries. And uh, he said after the Florida election and Trump's victory here that Florida was a model for the nation uh, uh, in its uh, election efficiency and uh, and security. Still, um, you know, here we are almost a year since the election. Uh, the Lake County Republican Party has just passed a resolution calling for an audit of Florida's results, uh, claiming that uh, in, in their resolution, quote, uh, a majority of citizens doubt that the November 3rd, 2020 election was conducted openly and fairly. Um, there's also been legislation filed by a Lake County Republican legislator, the uh, the, the Trump barnacle, uh, Anthony Sabatini. Uh, that would require an audit as well. But um, Sabatini is uh, sort of on the outs, even with uh, the Republican establishment in uh, the state. So how far that goes is a big question. Um, it really, all told, where this goes, uh, I don't know. Uh, but DeSantis is clearly ready to enact whatever policy that can get him more attention on Fox News. And if the uh, drumbeat for an audit resonates with, uh, well, within GOP circles outside of Lake County, uh, which there are signs, maybe it does. Uh, we've seen there's a Collier County Republican State Committee man who is offering DeSantis a $100,000 contribution if he can get two hours to speak with him about why he thinks the election in Florida was invalid. Um, so stay tuned. We may uh, soon in Tallahassee be on the hunt for who knows, you know, China's role in the Florida election and, and the search for counterfeit mail-in ballots. 
I've heard a lot of ways to describe uh, Trump acolytes, John, but Trump barnacle is a new a one. Barnacle. That's, a, that's a pretty apt description, though. He, um, he does cling pretty closely to Trump. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we, we could be soon be looking for bamboo fibers here in Florida. Stay tuned. Exactly. Uh, An- yeah. Antonio, you want to tell us about your number? Well, you know what? Venezuela is not far away, and I believe their their yeah. communists were behind all of yeah. this. So yeah, there's a lot of Venezuelans in Florida. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here we go. Uh, you know, 44 percent is uh, 44. Is, I, it's that's in like 44 percent of Republicans that want former President Trump to run again in 2024, according to a Pew Research uh, Center survey released this week. Now I don't know about you, but that number seems low to me. I would have thought it would have been higher. But then again, hey, look, we're in Florida, the Trumpiest state in the country. And that figure certainly would be a lot higher here. Except that I'm going to call attention to a story that Palm Beach Post reporter Chris Prasad wrote this week. He looked at data from the November 2020 election results and found that in Republican strongholds right here in Palm Beach County, Trump's home base, the former president hemorrhaged votes last year. Uh, He did far worse in some of these longtime Republican precincts than certain than he did actually in 2016 and that Mitt Romney had done in 2012. And after the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the GOP also lost voter registrations here. Now, before you go, hey, look, Antonio's chicken little trying to catch the falling sky. The Florida GOP keeps racking up new records registrations across the state, uh, cutting into the Democrats lead. And as John has reported, Trump political godson Ron DeSantis has amassed a campaign war chest that seems insurmountable. So to paraphrase what state GOP chair Joe Gutierrez told Chris, what, me worry? In Florida right now, there really doesn't seem to be a reason for Republicans to worry. Nonetheless, 2024 is still a ways off, and that's a lot more time for Republicans to think about moving beyond Trump and take a good look at other options, like DeSantis and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. One is doing so, apparently, meaning moving on from Trump, is part-time Palm Beach and Trump neighbor Ken Griffin, the billionaire hedge fund manager who has funded a lot of Republican initiatives. And you mentioned earlier, Zach, uh, has been behind DeSantis. Um, it told Bloomberg this week that, quote unquote, I think it's time for America to move on, meaning from Trump. That said, you know, Trump remains the GOP's kingmaker. But perhaps that doesn't exactly mean he's automatically the Republicans' uh, chosen one for 2024. Antonio, what did you make of Trump coming out and saying uh, somebody asked him about DeSantis and he said, well, if, if I face him, I'll beat him like everybody else. It, it seemed like a little bit of, uh, um, you know, that that uh, he's feeling a little bit of that rivalry. Yeah. And that was about the same time that Ken Griffin uh, made his comments. So, yeah, look, uh, you know, maybe 2024 politics is starting already. But uh, look at this at, right now. You got to, you know, Trump is the best known name in the GOP. And uh, I think that, you know, as we've said in the past, uh, that the longer that he doesn't make an announcement, the, lo- the more time these other potential candidates um, have to, you know, float trial balloons and test the waters and get out there and game, ne- game recognition. So uh, this, is, this is not, you know, this is kind of a dicey in some ways for Trump, even though he is, the, uh, no, no question, the, the dominant leading figure in the Republican Party in Florida and across the country. And I, and I still have a hard time seeing any Republican challenge Trump in the primary yeah. other than some of these, you know, outsider libertarian types. Yep. But 
We'll, we'll see. <clears throat> well, my number is 12. That's the number of people who protested outside a Sarasota County school board member's home this week in opposition to the school district's mass mandate. The protesters carried bullhorns and a Trump flag and demanded that the school board member come out and face them for, quote, a redress of grievances. Two people wore T-shirts with the emblem of the Proud Boys, a far-right group that was heavily involved in the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol, targeting a school board member at her home. It's just another example of how heated the COVID debate has become, especially when it comes to our public school system. The school mask wars have been intense, spawning new groups such as Moms for Liberty and pulling people into politics who may not have paid much attention before. And it appears like some of this debate may die down now that COVID cases are declining. Shortly after the protest outside the school board member's home, the board voted unanimously to abolish the mask mandate because the COVID infection rate in Sarasota is down significantly. But this issue is likely to keep simmering into the 2022 election season when DeSantis says he plans to get involved in school board races. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Chander Hefley, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.